Hello, my name is Thomas Berezovsky, and I'm the director of Two Journeys Ministry. If you find Andy Davis's content helpful and you want to help us disseminate free gospel-centered content, please prayerfully consider donating to Two Journeys. All end of your gifts will be matched up to $20,000. Please visit the donate page on twojourneys.org for more information on how to donate. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, as we learn the stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ from the past. Now, last time we had gotten to the exciting moment in redemptive history of the Reformation. The Reformation in the 16th century uh, began with uh, courageous action on the part of Martin Luther, nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle and beginning a debate and discussion on aspects of salvation that the medieval Roman Catholic Church had been getting wrong. And last time we unfolded four great movements of the Reformation, the Lutherans, the Anabaptists, the Reformed movement, led by John Calvin in Geneva, and then the Anglican movement, or the Church of England, culminating eventually in the ministry of the Puritans in the 17th century. So now we need to go back and look at the Roman Catholic response, the Counter-Reformation. We're going to see, sadly, how the Roman Catholic Church doubled down on their domination and on false doctrine of salvation. For a while, the Roman Catholic hierarchy, led by various popes, did very little about Protestantism, seemingly hoping that it would just die down. But eventually they did respond, and they did so with extraordinary vigor. Tragically, I think, they went in the wrong direction. Rather than pondering and evaluating the insights from the Reformers and making suitable changes, the Roman Catholic hierarchy doubled down on their commitment to dominate world affairs, to preach a message of self-salvation through the agency of the Roman Catholic Church. So while historians like uh, Bruce Shelley and Kenneth Scott Latourette give balanced evaluations of subsequent Roman Catholic decisions and efforts and leaders, and I don't doubt that there were some genuinely converted people in the Roman Catholic Church in, in that era, I personally cannot agree and remain true to my convictions. The Council of Trent called by Pope Paul III in the year 1545, which met at various times uh, till 1563, utterly repudiated with the most violent language the gospel of the New Testament as articulated by the Reformers. Central to this was the article on justification, which declared an anathema, that was an official word, let him be accursed, on anyone who taught justification by faith alone. Instead, in line with the semi-Pelagian theology of the previous centuries, that is a cooperative effort between human free will and the grace of God, that's semi-Pelagianism, they asserted that justification was a cooperation of the grace of God, the will of man, as displayed through the Roman Catholic sacraments. That's how you saved yourself resulting in a lasting efforts at a righteous life. Now, if we have to repudiate the converts, one among the barbarians by the 
Arian missionaries of the fourth century, that was the earlier version of what we now know as the Jehovah's Witness heresy, and say, you know, any converts won by Arian missionaries are not really worth talking about. So we must in some sense repudiate any of the converts won by a false gospel of semi-Pelagianism that the Roman Catholic Church taught after the Reformation, which combines God's grace and man's efforts through the sacramental life of the church. And there were vigorous missionaries that went out to spread the Roman Catholic understanding of the gospel. Now, the Council of Trent was led, for the most part, by members of a new order in the Roman uh, Church called the Society of Jesus, more commonly uh, called the Jesuits. The Jesuits were founded by Ignatius of Loyola, who was born in 1491 and died in 1556. A Spanish nobleman and a notorious playboy who, like Luther, became terrified of hell and sought salvation. But unlike Luther, he believed that sinners can be saved by harnessing through strict discipline their will and their imagination to the service of God. Ignatius of Loyola physically beat his own body. He wore a nail-studded belt, which turned inward and constantly ripped at his flesh. And in these ways, he found peace with God. He wrote out a detailed program for achieving sainthood through self-effort called Spiritual Exercises and organized a society of zealous young men who were ready to die for the Roman Catholic Church and for the will of the Pope, the Jesuits. This was just in time to orchestrate the repudiation of the gospel at the Council of Trent and to fire up the Inquisition, a program of severe inquiry and torture aimed at rooting out heresy to crush Protestantism wherever it was found. Furthermore, as explorers like Christopher Columbus brought back reports of the New World and Magellan brought back reports of a nautical passage to the Orient, the Jesuits were fanatically ready to spread the power and Rome's vision of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was in this spirit that the Spanish conquistadors built a Spanish empire of slavery in the New World, filling up the coffers of Catholic kings and the Pope with New World riches. It was in this spirit that the Treaty of Saragossa in 1529 between the kings of Spain and of Portugal divided up the world between them. It was in this spirit also that Ignatius's right man, Francis Xavier, went out as a Jesuit missionary to India, China, and Japan from 1541 to 1552 and won many converts to Roman Catholicism. But to what gospel were they converted? What was the message that he preached? Now, initially, in his mission work in India, Francis held to the standard procedures of the Jesuits, including advocating the use of the Inquisition against any who opposed. But when he got to Japan and began to understand the ancient and noble culture of Japan, he changed his methodology to a more creative harmonization of his version of Christianity. Later, Jesuit missionaries in Kyoto translated significant portions of the New Testament into Japanese. So, I have the same hope for these early Japanese Christians that I presented earlier for the barbarian converts of Aryan missionaries, that if they had the scriptures, they could possibly individually come to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ by reading the Holy Scriptures. 
So we can hope that there were some genuine converts in Japan. When I was a Baptist missionary in Japan, I heard the stories of the extraordinary courage of Japanese Christians under, under the persecution of the shoguns in the first half of the 17th century. I was inspired by their dedication to Christ. I do hope that they had embraced a true gospel and that I will meet them in heaven and with Christ as my teacher, experience powerfully the circumstances of their courage to the glory of God. I look forward to that in heaven. Well, that ends this portion of uh, the, the unfolding of the history, and that is of the Reformation, Counter-Reformation. Now we move to a major new era that I want to contemplate, and that is the years 1700 to 1789, a response to the gospel through reason, and reason repudiating the gospel, but then revival answering that repudiation. So as the Reformation grew in strength, and as the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation sought to crush it, both sides operated from a common worldview, that there should be one Christian faith and that the state should uphold and defend that one Christian faith. The legacy of medieval Christendom, the ironclad welding together of church and state, bore its bitter final fruit in the religious wars that rent the European continent. The Peace of Augsburg, 1555, between Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and the Protestant princes united in something called the Schmalkaldic League, carved out uh, a place for Lutheranism among the German-speaking states that comprised a large portion of the Holy Roman Empire. It allowed the prince of that individual state, Germanic state, to decide what religion his state would follow. So we should not think of one big German nation, but lots of small Germanic states, each with its own prince or ruler. And the slogan was, whose region his religion? In other words, each prince got to decide for all his own people, whether they be Protestant or Catholic. So that's not freedom of religion at all. Now, there were significant flaws to this formula. First, it left out anyone who was neither Catholic nor Lutheran like the Reformed people or the Anabaptists. Secondly, it forced religion on the subjects of a realm, or it forced them to leave the state. Longer term, it vastly undercut the concept of one true religion. For if religion could change simply by changing one's address, was there really any truth in any of it at all? But this was the last kind of version, the last vestige of that strong union of church and state in Europe. That had been the case for centuries. And this peace failed in the decades that followed. The Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, fought in Central Europe between Catholics and Protestants, resulted in a staggering eight million dead, not only from the battles but also from the famines and plagues that were a direct results of the war. And though the war began over religious convictions, by the end it was clearly about political power and the control of Europe. The greatest legacy uh, was the rise of the modern nation-state, as we know today. The greatest spiritual legacy of these religious wars was the end of any semblance of papal control over politics and the rise of voluntary religion in all of those nation-states including in the Roman Catholic areas, 
with a variety of denominations and religions to choose from. Religion became much more of a matter of private and individualized rather than public and civic concern. In the end, true conversion and spiritual growth has always been a work of sovereign grace by God in the heart of individual sinners based on the truth of God's Word, apart from external worldly coercions. So for me as a Baptist, it's easy to say that. You can't coerce or compel some person to believe something. They believe because they're persuaded by the Scriptures and by the Holy Spirit. So the final kind of separation of church and state occurred as a result ultimately of the events of the Thirty Years' War and the things that happened through the 17th century into the 18th century. Now in the New World, specifically in the colonies that eventually became the United States, people came from various religious backgrounds to forge a new economic reality for themselves. After the death of Queen Elizabeth, the Church of England had gone on its own journey to arrive at religious toleration. The battle between Catholics and Protestants for control of England and the English Church included a civil war, the English Civil War, the execution of King Charles I, the reign of the Puritans under the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell, and then the restoration of the monarchy under Charles II. The people of England became weary of religious conflict, choosing stability and peace even at the cost of religious convictions and the desire for one's particular convictions to have the backing of the state's power. Englishmen gave up on that. They didn't want that anymore. So it became more privatized and, and personal and, and free. The Toleration Act, May 14, 1689, granted freedom of worship to nonconformists, that is, dissenting Protestants such as Baptists and Congregationalists. Uh, though Roman Catholics were excluded from this freedom, it was more because of concern over the Catholics' desire for political power than for theological reasons. This spirit of toleration extended to the colonies England had planted and was developing in the New World. For two generations, the New England Puritans who had settled in the Bay Colony, Massachusetts, saw themselves as a new Israel settling in a promised land and did not practice religious freedom for two generations. They persecuted Baptists and anyone who didn't agree with them. The New England Puritans ran the state until their royal charter was revoked in 1684. From that time on, the New World was entirely free for people of various religions and denominations to settle and develop their lives. So Quakers came to Pennsylvania, Catholics came to Maryland, Dutch Reformed settled in New York, even Jewish people were allowed to set up synagogues in Rhode Island. Swedish Lutherans, French Huguenots, English Baptists, Scottish Presbyterians all came later. The New World would develop its religious heritage generally free from state coercion. Individuals held their private convictions but no longer sought to establish a state that would force those convictions on others. And the recent memory of witch trials and the long history of torture and execution of heretics in Europe did more to establish freedom of religion than conformity to religious dogma. But as these events developed, another conclusion grew in the minds of many and became more and more strongly asserted and defended that religion itself was the fabrication of the power of greedy, corrupt priests backed by equally greedy, corrupt rulers and that human reason stood above all these ancient myths and superstitions and emotions of the Christian religion. This became known as the Age of Reason. 
and it forced Christian thinkers and evangelists to sharpen their apologetics and change their approach to winning souls. The Age of Reason is more generally known as the Enlightenment, and it developed from the rise in humanism flowing from the Renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries. Scholars like Erasmus read the classical philosophical texts of ancient Greece and Rome in the original languages, and they began to question the doctrines of the church. Erasmus did it in secret at the beginning of the Reformation, fearing for the loss of money that he was getting, patronage, um, but perhaps even fearing for his life. He hid behind clever little one-act plays called colloquies and anonymous writings like Julius Excluded from Heaven, by which he was able to expose and mock aspects of the church's life and doctrine. But by the 17th and 18th century, scholars like him grew more and more bold. They no longer, no longer feared being burned at the stake for their blasphemies. They openly challenged and mocked all aspects of Christian thought. Many skeptics arose during the Age of Reason, but none captured the spirit of the age better than Francois-Marie Arouet, better known by his pen name, Voltaire, born in 1694, died in 1778. His slogan was, Crush the Loathsome Thing. And that loathsome thing was the Christian church. He denied the doctrine of the incarnation as a fabrication and said that the early church had spent three centuries building an argument for the deity of Christ. He said that faith consists in believing what reason cannot believe. So basically pitted faith against reason. But God, during the age of reason, raised up Christian thinkers who exposed flaws in the arguments of critics and showed the essential unity of faith and reason. One of these was the brilliant French mathematician, philosopher, and defender of the faith, Blaise Pascal. Born in 1623, died in 1662. Pascal was a deeply spiritual man, and early in his life had a powerful mystical experience that shaped his entire life. After his death, friends were going through his personal effects and found Pascal's account of that experience written on a piece of paper that had been sewn into the lining of his shirt. And this is what it read. This day of grace, 1654, from about half past ten at night to about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the wise. Security, security, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of all except Christ. He can be found only in ways taught in the gospel. Greatness of the human soul. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have separated myself from him. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? That I be not separated from thee eternally. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou hast sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I have separated myself from him. I have fled, renounced, crucified him. May I never be separated from him. He maintains himself in me in ways only taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. That's what was written on a piece of paper sewn inside the brilliant mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal's coat after he died. 
Notice the combination of deep passion and careful scripture-based reason. He can be found only in ways taught in the gospel, he wrote. Pascal would later write, The heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing of. But clearly, the heart's passion must be based on scripture's revelation of absolute truth. As the Christian religion continued to make its way through the age of reason, and the new era of freedom apart from the state's power, more and more deadness and mechanical church attendance spread throughout both Great Britain and New England. The church in these regions seemed to be in a deep slumber, and only a powerful voice could arouse them. This voice came by the powerful and clear preaching of the gospel during the first great awakening. The message of the new birth you must be born again, that Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, was clearly and passionately proclaimed by such men as Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and John Wesley. The power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on these men and on their assemblies, and thousands were savingly converted and brought into the church, the first great awakening. Now, no one advanced the work of the great awakening more diligently and more successfully than George Whitfield, born 1714 and died 1770. Over the course of his itinerant preaching career, this Anglican minister preached at least 18,000 times to an estimated 10 million hearers. It is estimated that about 80% of all American colonists heard Whitfield preach at least once. He pioneered the practice of out-of-doors preaching in England. His preaching was characterized by faithful biblical exegesis, Calvinist theology, and a powerfully passionate appeal to the hearer to repent and believe in Christ for the salvation of their soul. Now, I want to talk more when we zero in on some heroes of the faith later about details from Whitfield's life. He's one of my great heroes. I actually have a picture of Whitfield up on a barrel preaching to crowds of people while others were tormenting him by blasting with trumpets or trying to distract him. And so we'll talk more about Whitfield, uh, God willing, in future times. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that there's nothing new under the sun. Whatever it is you're going through, there are Christians who have come before you who have dealt with similar struggles and through the power of Christ have overcome them, and you will too. And we also know from Scripture that God went ahead of them and prepared good works for them to do, and they did them for the glory of God. In the same way, God has gone ahead of you and prepared good works for you to do for His glory. So go and do them by the same power of the Spirit that was working in them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.